Lurk Conversazioni is presented by Dazzle Communication and CPW Conversations and is supported by, now I forgot to ask the, the, uh, the uh, speakers to tell me how to pronounce this, so I'm going to say MIBACT, it's M-I-B-A-C-T, Italian Ministry of Cultural Heritage and Activities and Tourism. Additional support is provided by main sponsors, Maserati and TIM. The official sponsor and media partner is Rai uh, Radio Televisi Televisione Italiana, and the partner for tonight's program is the Italian Trade Agency. Our moderator for the evening is Antonio Monda, who teaches in the film and television department at New York University and is the director of several documentaries, including the feature film Dicembre, which was presented at the Venice Film Festival. He has curated exhibitions for MoMA, Lincoln Center, and the Guggenheim Museum, and is the artistic director of Le Conversazioni, co-founded with David Azzolini, David Davide Azzolini, where are you? In the auditorium. I don't see you, but he's wonderful, and he's going to be with us all night. Mr. Monde is a columnist for RAI and a regular contributor for the cultural pages of La Repubblica. An author of essays, short stories, and novels, his forthcoming novel will be published as part of a 10-book project dedicated to New York in the 20th century. And a news from yesterday, we congratulate him on being appointed as the new artistic director of the Rome Film Festival, which is very exciting. We are also thrilled to welcome Jonathan Demme to the New York Historical Society. Mr. Demme has directed and produced more than 40 movies over his long and distinguished career, including celebrated films Rachel Getting Married, Silence of the Lambs, and the film Philadelphia, which we will be screening this coming Friday evening. Again, if you pick up a brochure or if you received our film flyer, please come back. Mr. Demi's films have been nominated for 20 Academy Awards, and in 1991, he won the Academy Award for Best Director for Silence of the Lambs. He has produced or directed documentaries and performance films, including Peabody Award-winning Bia, A Black Woman Speaks, and Academy Award nominee Mandela, Son of Africa. Ricky and the Flash, an upcoming American comedy drama scheduled for release in the USA this summer, is his latest film and stars Meryl Streep and Kevin Klein. And now, please join me in welcoming our guests. Thank you. Good evening. Welcome Thank back you. to Le Conversazioni. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Antonio. We're opening tonight the 2015 <coughs> series of Le Conversazioni with a new format here at the New York Historical Society. I would like to thank first my dear friend and partner, Davide Azzolini. I don't know where Davide is, but... Davide, my, where are you? I don't know, but I promise he cafe. was with us. He was with us two minutes ago. I, would I think like he's to... having a falangina in the cafe. <laughs> he brought a falangina, actually. <laughs> I would like to thank everybody here at the New York Historical Society, starting from my dear friend Dale Gregory. Thank you, Dale. 
And uh, this program is slightly different from the one that we have somewhere else in New York at the Morgan Library. We will focus on Jonathan's career and possibly also his life. And I would like to start by asking, is it true that you wanted to become a veterinarian? Oh, yeah. And so what, what, why you're a filmmaker now? Um, <laughs> I'll, try to, I'll give you the short version of that. Um, but yeah, I, like, I think like so many of us, I was obsessed with animals as a kid, uh, especially dogs and to a lesser degree cats. But oh, I love dogs so much. Um, I would go to school in the morning, in elementary school, and they would call my mother at 9 o'clock and say, is Jonathan sick today? I'd say, well, no, he left for school an hour and a half ago. And then she would go out, and she would drive the car on my route to school, and she would find me in some yard playing with a dog. So I always had this, and of course I wanted to be a veterinarian uh, and you know, be a doctor who helps animals. And uh, this was my dream, and I, I worked in uh, animal hospitals uh, from the time I was in junior high. I was a kennel person, and I was a, a veterinary assistant. And finally, I saved up the money to go to college to begin my pre-medical studies. And I arrived at college chemistry. And within <laughs> two days, <laughs> two days, I was gone. I remember a moment, and it was like, you know, I, Pretend this is a lecture hall, and these are all the students, and I'm sitting there where that gentleman is, and the teacher is up here with the blackboard saying all this stuff, and I was sitting out there going like, it's like such a foreign language, and I looked around at the other students, and they were all like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> and I said, I'm screwed. <laughs> um, so I dropped out uh, of, I didn't drop out of college, I, you know, saved up all that money for that semester, so I dropped out of chemistry. And I was completely broke, and um, I was a huge film buff also. I didn't, it never occurred to me that one could actually work in the movie business. I had no money, and I wanted to see movies, and I was feeling very sorry for myself, and I thought, my God, what am I going to do? And I realized that the campus newspaper didn't have a film critic. So I deduced that if I could be the film critic, for the campus newspaper at the uh, University of Florida that I could probably get into the cinemas for free. I went down, I asked the editor, can I be your film critic? And he said, well, write a review of something that's playing now. And you if it's any good film? Um, yes, it was Law and Order, uh, a Peter Sellers movie. And I have a confession that I don't care. I'm, I'm older now. It doesn't matter. <laughs> but I had no money to go see Law and Order. So I went to the library. And I got out the periodic guide to literature, whatever they called it, and I read all the reviews of Law and Order. And I formed an opinion. I have to, I have to stop you because some of my students are here. Don't do this. Please don't. I didn't plagiarize. I formed an opinion. And I you know, wrote up my review, and the guy was, OK, I'll print it. So suddenly I was a film critic. I didn't realize this was my gateway into the movie business. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that was too long. I'll give shorter answers. For no, no, it's a great answer. But is there anything that remained as the former veterinarian in your filmmaker career? Um, well, you know, Antonio, you've seen, we're friends. So you've yes. seen most of my recent pictures. Didn't you notice that in Manchurian Candidate and then Rachel getting married, there's a poodle <laughs> that plays a big part in the proceedings. In my new film, Ricky and the Flash, there's 
yet another poodle. So this is me. I'm still kind of desperately trying to bring the animal world into, into the, the world of cinema. Why don't we start, start by watching one of your clips? The film, <clears throat> I'm sorry. The film is a wonderful film by 9080 called Melvin and Howard. Can I say that probably is your, your first success? Because until then you made other beautiful film, mostly with Roger Corman, but with low budget. This is the first film that is sort of a breakthrough. Can I define that? Like oh, that? yes. Yeah, okay. Let's watch a clip and then we'll discuss about this film. Shake the ground, shake the ground. Shake the ground, shake the ground. Hey, everybody. Shake the ground, shake the ground. Hey, Dad. What is that you're drinking? Just a little brandy. They repossessed the car today. These guys are going to stick together. Did you hear me? Yeah, I heard you. Right in the parking lot outside Kmart. That's all right. Sure. What's, what's for supper tonight? Bell peppers. Linda, you know I don't like bell peppers. I got you keep bell getting pop. bell peppers. I, I don't like them. I got bell peppers. Shh. It's the gateway to Easy Street. Gate number two. All right, then. Which gate do you want? It's going to be two. One. It's going to be one. Two. Number three. Come on, two. Three. Number two. Three. Two. One. Two. When you get up there to the gateway, just keep bedding up. Bed up, okay? Come on. Don't settle for nothing. But now, suppose we're ahead a few hundred dollars. My God, think what we could do with a few hundred dollars. Hey, how about try a few thousand on some size? We could be in Hawaii with cash and size. Don't worry about it. Just be brave, baby. Baby? Yeah. This is show business. The film is about a very peculiar relationship or friendship between a gentleman whose name is Melvin and Howard, who is Howard Hughes. And my question is why American artists, and particularly filmmakers, are obsessed by Howard Hughes, especially famous and great filmmakers, starting from you. There is the Scorsese film, The Aviator. He appears also in a Coppola film, uh, Tucker. Mm -hmm. And there is a TV film with Tommy Lee Jones. Why are you all obsessed by him? Uh -huh. Well, you know, this particular, it's true, you can find Howard Hughes in many ways. Of course, you can even see the films he produced and yeah. directed, if you want yeah. to. Um, this, this, um, this film isn't really about Howard Hughes. Yeah. It's about Melvin Dumar. And, um, you know, I, I can remember seeing this little article in the newspaper one day, uh, long before I received the script for this, saying that um, a will purported to be Howard Hughes's will 
um, had been discovered and the main beneficiary was a, you know, like a working class uh, a garage mechanic named Melvin Dumar. And, um, you know, this idea um, of like the American dream suddenly coming true for somebody who's been struggling for so many years, this caught the imagination of um, Mike Nichols, mm -hmm. um, who got Bo Goldman involved to write the script. Who eventually wrote the script and won an Oscar for this. Yes. And um, it, was, uh, it was my good fortune that, that um, I want to call him Mike because I knew Mike Nichols very well. Very, very well. happy to very pay homage to the great yeah. late, late Mike Nichols. And he couldn't, um, he couldn't cast the film in a way that gave him the confidence that it could be a commercial success. Um, he wanted either Jack Nicholson or Al Pacino to play Melvin Dumar. And when neither of them would do it, he stepped back. And that was the moment when the script came to me from Tom Mount, who was the head of Universal. And I couldn't believe reading this, this screenplay, because like you said, I had done these Roger Corman movies with lots of you know, violence and action and all that kind of stuff. And suddenly here was this amazing American story. So, um, you know, and you're right, uh, Bo won an Oscar for adapted also screenplay. Also Mary Steenburgen. Mary Steenburgen, it was her second film. So that was a great experience. That's one of, one of my films that I could actually watch in a very relaxed way. I'm very, very proud of that film. <laughs> Why don't we go to the next clip, which is another beautiful film made a few years later. The title is Something Wild. Hmm. Oh, yeah, to the pool hall up there. That's your main place. Excuse me. Excuse me, can I get my check? Thank you. Thank you, Daddy. Hey, what's your name? Hey, Frenchie, how are you, my friend? Hey, I'm close. Hello, how are you? What? You didn't pay your bill, big boy. Oh, sure I paid, didn't I? The check's in your pocket. That's <gasps> huh. right. <laughs> okay, let me take care of that right now. I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know how this happened. It's just, I, it's, this is just, uh, you know, I got a lot of things on my mind, you know, business things, and I just, I simply forgot, that's all. You deliberately walked out without paying that check. I did not. Here, come on, take, just take the money and, you know, and keep the change and... Fine, maybe you'd like to tell a cop. No, 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 just... Let me guess. Sometimes you don't pay for your lunch. Or maybe you steal the occasional candy bar or newspaper. You're a closet rebel. Oh, that's my uh, telepatron. I gotta call the office. Oh. Which way are you going? I'll give you a ride. Well, don't you don't you have to go up, go back to work? 
I don't work there. Wait, 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 wait. what's all this business about the, uh, the uh, check? Incoming. Uh, well, I, uh, all right. It's just, I gotta go by the bank. And then... Uh, oh, 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 oh. By the bank on J Street, then down to the office. I'll drop you off. Well, it's downtown. I'm on my way. Ready or not, babe. It was pretty funny, don't you? Way you uh... the way you had me going back there. It was all right. I'm Lily. Charles, it's pleased to meet you. I would like to thank my great friend, producer and editor Dado Carrillo, who put together this montage. I don't know where Dado is, but thank you very much. Thank you. Jonathan, you're a very eclectic filmmaker. Can I say this? I mean, this film is very different from Melvin and Howard which is very different from Philadelphia and Silence of the Lambs, Beloved, and et cetera, et cetera. Is there anything in common? Is there a Phil Rouge or something that you like, particularly in a story, in a film, and it's always the same, beside the poodles, of course? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I love the characters in my films. I think that's the really only common denominator, and that's whether it's a feature film or a... Uh, a documentary or a performance film with uh, music. Um, I love these characters. I love these people. I love filming them and telling their story. Um, what did you like about, about these characters? Well, I have to tell you something that occurred to me while watching it um, as we sit here at the New York Historical Society <laughs> and talk about some movie history. Um, after Melvin and Howard, um, which did very poorly at the box office, um, although it got some Become awards and it now, got yeah. nice reviews, but it did poorly at the box office. And um, it took me a while to um, get another script that I would be enthusiastic about. Um, and that became a script called Swing Shift. And that was a bigger budget movie. And Goldie Hawn was the star. And um, I thought to myself, and I moved to California. I was a, a New Yorker. I moved to California. I thought, well, this is it. I've made it to the big time. Um, I'm on the Warner Brothers lot with my parking space, and I'm doing a Goldie Hawn movie, uh, like this. And you know, we shot that film. And then <clears throat> um, uh, Goldie, uh, she was a big star then. She decided that. It was a mistake to make Swing Shift about her character and Hazel, played by Christine Lati, who also was nominated for yes, an Oscar, Oscar somehow. In this. But anyway, um, I, I can explain why I said that. So then, then the next thing I know, they're wanting to recut the movie and rewrite it so it becomes about Goldie's character and Kurt Russell's character because Kurt and Goldie had fallen in love while making Swing Shift. And Goldie felt that... that this was a squandered opportunity to make a film about her and Christine Lottie with Kurt in the background. It should be about her and Kurt with Christine in the background. So um, 
I got fired from that <laughs> eventually because I refused to change it. I, I made the, I shot these hideous scenes that Robert Town wrote because he was trying to get back in the good graces of, uh, of Warner Brothers. I'll ask my students who Robert Town is, so be prepared. Well, good, and, and feel free to tweet any of this. Because uh, I'm not angry anymore, but, mm, you know. So the, anyway, so I left California. I was like, that's it. I wasn't even sure if I wanted to really to make films anymore. To have the film, well, everybody's beautiful work, and we made a, a good film. Um, and to see everybody's work, like, just ruined, really, by, all the, by trying to turn it into something that it wasn't. So I came back to New York. I had shot Stop Making Sense while we were editing uh, uh, Swing Shift. But I came back to New York, and Orion Pictures, which was based in New York, um, reached out to me and said, you know, would you like to do a movie with us? And I, believe me, I couldn't get arrested after Swing Shift. When you get fired in Hollywood, it's tough, people. It's really tough. Um, and Orion reached out to me. Eric Pleskow called and said, you know, we, we you know, think you're a terrific filmmaker. Would you like to make a film with us? <clears throat> and my assistant, Ed Saxon, who became my producing partner on Something Wild in many films, he, he found this script uh, by E. Max Fry. And I read it, and I loved it. And we showed it to Orion, and they said, yes, do it. So here's my point. As a return New Yorker, and as a filmmaker who I really felt I was being reborn again. You know, I'd gone to hell and crashed and burned on swing shift, and now I was arising, and I was in New York, and I wanted to make a real New York movie, um, even though the story t starts in New York, goes to Pennsylvania, and comes back. And um, it's just really kind of like, I've, I tried to fill the film up with all the energy and talent that's in New York, and you know, David Byrne wrote our, uh, a, a titled song, and Celia Cruz sang it with him, and just throughout the film, you can see, Laurie Anderson did some scoring, John Cale did some scoring, great New York cast. So um, something that was very special for me because it gave me a chance to fall in love with filmmaking again. And by the way, the screenplay of Something Wild is by Max Fry, by Max Fry. who wrote Foxcatcher. It was nominated yeah. a couple of days ago for the yeah. Oscars. I'm so proud to see that, because Max is a wonderful writer. It's a great writer, yeah. I, I totally, and I like Foxcatcher. Yes, It's a beautiful too. film. Me too. As I promised, we'll deal also with Jonathan's life and taste, so we ask him to select a film that he likes, and this is what he picked. That's for the third clip now. <clears throat> Is that yours? Don't touch it, it's Uncle Rico's. What's it for? It's a time machine, Napoleon. We bought it online. You're right. It works, Napoleon. You don't even know. Have you guys tried it yet? No. Are you ready? Yeah, hold on. I forgot to put in the crystals. 
Okay, turn it on. It's a piece of crap, it doesn't work. Well, I could have told you that. <laughs> can I ask you why this film? Oh, right? can, we, can we, um, it, it, could you, if you saw Napoleon Dynamite, could you raise your hand? Okay, good, exactly. Um, so we don't have to explain this. Exactly. <laughs> but why you? <laughs> well, you know, for me, um, I had, uh, you know, after Something Wild and then other films and again the budget starting get it, getting bigger again. Mm -hmm. um, there were no firings. And then I did um, uh, Mentoring Candidate, a remake of John Frankenheimer's classic. And um, <laughs> that was a real studio movie and it, it, it cost an enormous amount of money. We came in on budget. I always come in on budget. I learned that from my Roger Corman training. But, oh my God, it was made for a huge amount of money. Um, and there was all these struggles, you know, with the studio and some of the producers, and it just was a kind of a battlefield. <clears throat> and at the end of Venture in Canada, I thought to myself, wow, I need to take a, a rest from, from this stuff from filming, and I had a little bit of money in the bank, and I was just like, I'm just gonna like, you know, live for a little while. So, in this moment, I saw Napoleon Dynamite, and I just thought it was an extraordinary film, so original. Um, the budget for that film, I think, was $120,000, is what I've heard, to make this entire movie, and it had its own look, and its own set of characters, its own sense of humor, its own themes, its own beauty, and I thought to myself, oh my God, you know, I've been like doing this now for, from 74, I've been doing this now for like uh, 30 years. I know I've learned a lot, um, but can I take everything I've learned and make a film like Napoleon Dynamite <laughs> for just a little money? Um, so this became something that, that kind of was really on my mind. And it, it, it definitely led me into, um, you know, kind of like a indie phase. I also loved, indep I love independent films. And so I was like, that's, I want to be an independent filmmaker. You know, I've done some performance films that are offbeat and what have you. So um, that led to, eventually to Rachel getting married, which cost a fraction of what Mentoring Candidate costs, but also costs a lot more than Napoleon Dynamite. But at least I felt I was making an original kind of film. Do you have more fun when you do independent films? It's, you know, yes, um, because it's very exciting to be, well, it's exciting to make any film, but mm -hmm. there's something very special about doing an indie film. You feel, and it's strange to hear some of my age say this, it's like you're doing something and the grown-ups aren't there. You know, you're really kind of just doing it. Um, with a studio film, and I've just, just very recently done a new studio film, and uh, now with that, you know, you have the bigger budget, and you, you know, ha you, you can have more equipment to film with, and, and, and the cameraman can light it up in special ways, and, it, and you've got a big crew, and as lovely it is to work with a small crew, and it is great, it's also great to work with a kind of a big crew, and this family is formed. So at the end of the day, as we sit here tonight, Antonio, I love both indie and studio. That may change over the course of the next six months, but. Do you mind if <laughs> I show a clip, which is one of my favorite of all your films, 
and you'll tell us how this is started, because not only is a great work of art, but it's a revolutionary film in terms of content, and of course, of directing. Let's watch now a clip from Philadelphia. Do you mind this music? Do you like opera? I am not that familiar with opera, Andrew. Oh, this is my favorite aria. It's Maria Callas. It's Andrea Chenier. Umberto Giordano. This is Madalena. Saying how during the French Revolution, a mob set fire to her house. Her, and her mother died, saving her. She said, look, the place that cradled me is burning. strings and it changes everything. It's like the music, it fills with, with a hope. That'll change again, listen. Heavens to the earth and makes 
of the earth, a heaven. Lisa's, uh, I told her that, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, I'll look over the, the Q&A. No, you're ready. You're ready. <sighs> I must confess that Davide, Dado, and I struggle a lot because it's such a great film. We picked at least five different scenes and then we end up by picking this one. I think it's revolutionary, this film, because from what I know, it's the first film that deals with AIDS, at least in Hollywood. How difficult was to make that film with this story? Um, the difficulty lay in realizing a script that would justify financing in the eyes of the financiers, which was TriStar Pictures. Um, Mark Platt, who was the head of productions then, and who, by the way, is the producer of Ricky and the Flash, my new movie, and was also one of the producers of Rachel Getting Married. Mark was the head of production, and he was, he really wanted to do a film that, that addressed what was going on with AIDS. Um, and um, Ron Nicewanner, who wrote this script and who was nominated for an Oscar for the screenplay, um, Ron had a cousin um, who was, uh, Hemophiliac, Kevin. He had been uh, gotten AIDS from a, 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 a transfusion, and um, one of my dearest friends in the world, um, Juan Suarez Botas, um, had AIDS. Ed Saxon, who produced the film, his best friend in the world, Bob Breslow, had AIDS, and this was at a moment in time in the early '90s when, um, you know, Reagan was president. And there was no interest on the, on the kind of the national level um, to respond. Uh, you know, it was kind of, we were still in the AIDS cures them mentality. Um, you know, like, well, you know, they're gay and they'll die from AIDS so they'll be cured, you know, of being gay. So we, this little group that I just mentioned, we, we actually had the audacity to believe that if we could make a film that somehow altered the consciousness, the prevailing consciousness of the country, that we could stimulate things that would lead to a cure and our loved ones would be saved. Uh, they would be rescued before they died. So um, Ron Nicewander searched and searched and finally came up with a story that is the story of Philadelphia. And uh, TriStar thought that was terrific and we worked Oh, so many drafts. We did like 23 drafts of that screenplay until it was like, you know what? I think we've nailed it. And we showed it to TriStar, and TriStar said, the script is great, but you, you've got to find some major actors because nobody wants to see an AIDS movie. You know, we want to go with you, but you need... 
So then we started, I, I wanted, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis um, was my idea for, for, uh, for the, Tom Hanks. Right? Yeah. And I also wanted either Bill Murray for or Denzel Washington Robin or Williams to play Denzel's comedian. part. Because I thought, like, if we can have a comedian, and in fact, the Joe Miller character has a sense of humor, but if we can have a comedian in this film, a very a big star comedian, that will help send a message that, you know, maybe you'll have fun seeing this movie about AIDS. And then I got a phone call from uh, an, a, the most powerful agent at CAA who represented Tom Hanks. And I promise you, this is what he said. Um, and he's like, hello, hi, I'm calling on behalf of, uh, of uh, my client, Tom Hanks, who has read your screenplay, Philadelphia. And um, he just wants to throw his hat in the ring and, and is, wants to know if you would consider him for the part. Now, meanwhile, Tom was, well, as he is now, gigantic movie star. And I was like, well, sure. <laughs> um, and I'm even thinking, Tom's funny too. You know, maybe. <laughs> and then he goes, I said, yeah. Um, sure, he said, okay, and I've been further instructed. This is his language, I swear to you. I've been further instructed on behalf of Tom to let you know that um, Price is no object. He will do this film. If you choose him, he will do it for Screen Actor Guild minimum. And I'm like, deal. Uh, <laughs> so, so Tom came to New York. We met, obviously. You know, there was no question. And then this extraordinary thing happens where Gary Getzman, who was one of our producers, was on an airplane. He sits down. He's reading the new draft of of our script or making notes or something, and he's seated next to Denzel Washington. So Denzel goes like, oh, what script is that? And Gary tells him what it is. Oh, what's it about? Gary tells him, and Denzel says, yeah, I'd like to read that. Um, so Gary gave him the script, and I get a phone call uh, a day later that Denzel really loves the part of Joe Miller. Um, so I call him up. And I said, so, you know, you've read the script and you want to play that part? And he says, yeah, yeah, very much. I, I think I, I like this piece a lot. You know, no one's doing anything out here about AIDS. Um, so I'd like, and I, and I said, well, okay, Denzel. And then I told him what I just told you, that I had really imagined Robin Williams or Bill Murray, the humor. And, and he, says on, he says on the phone, I hear his voice go, Jonathan, I can be very, very funny. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I'll bet you can. And then I thought, because, you know, I don't know how not to say things that are big in my mind. So I go, so let me ask you this, Denzel. You know, from what I've said about my original casting ideas, and, you, you know, you can read the script. I said, you know, it, it was written with a white person in mind for that part. Um, do you feel that the, there would need to be a writing done on the script to adjust yeah. it to have a black Joe Miller? And he says, do you? <laughs> and I was like, no. <laughs> and he said, me neither. So there we go. So actors took risk that investors wouldn't take, basically. I mean, the artists took the risk to make an AIDS film while producers were very afraid. Well, justifiably so. Um, I mean, it's, it's not, you know, Richard Corliss, who I renamed Richard Heartless, oh. after I read his a tiny little, film critic just, just, for Time Magazine, yeah. 
And when the film came out, you know, we got generally very good reviews. But Richard Corliss wrote a little tiny review in, in Time magazine, and he said, you know, thank you, Hollywood, for sending us this depressing package as we approach Christmas. Oh you know, this is the blah, blah, like that, and I thought, oh my God. But you know, it made me realize something, and I thought, you know, I understand what's going on with Richard Corliss, because if you are in any way um, discriminatory about people with AIDS, or if you're homophobic, or if you're anything, you know, if you're racist or anything, if you are presented with something that threatens, you know, your deep-seated prejudice, you have two choices. You either have to change, mm -hmm the way you think, or you reject, because you don't want to change. So that was, you know, Richard Hartless didn't want to change. He didn't want to open up to this notion that, that um, you know, gay characters and people with AIDS you know, were kind of heroic in their own way, going through these extraordinary struggles. They deserved our respect and support. So the film, you know, it did, it, it did very well. You made a wonderful film. Thank you. And Tom Hanks won an Oscar, one of his two Oscars. I want to say that eight of his actors were nominated for an Oscars, and four of them won. Anthony Hopkins, Jodie Foster, Mary Steenburgen, and, and Tom Hanks. Now I want to show your favorite place, which was light of a place that Jonathan really likes. <laughs> Guess where that is? Anybody? You tell me. I'm it's a lake, but... Uh, it's, it's Maine. Um, it's outside of a... No, gosh. But you get that foggy thing there. Now, this is in the uh, western part of Maine, and um, it's outside of a little town called Lovell, and that's Lake Kizar. And um, there's not a lot of houses there, and we were lucky enough... Um, you know, sometimes you can hit the jackpot, and when Science of the Lambs came out, and it did very well, and I actually got some money, and then my wife and I were up in Maine with our kids, and we were on a rented boat going by a cabin that's right here, that's right here, yeah. and saw a for sale sign. I was like, let's buy it. Um, so we bought this cabin, and uh, for the past 25 years, um, we spend as much as possible, even if it's only three days, of the summer at this exquisite place that's just in the middle of nature, and it's um, the opposite of you know the thrill that it is to be a New Yorker. You know, so this this place is. Uh, is it true that your neighbor is Stephen King? Yes, Stephen's just down <laughs> the lake a little bit, and uh, yeah, and we've 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 gotten to know each other, and we've kind of worked together a little bit on one thing or another. And I have to tell you a Stephen King anecdote. So we were up there last summer, and, uh, <laughs> and we were going to uh, go to a movie or have dinner or something like that. And I called him up to nail down the plans. And, and he answered, hello? And I said, Stephen, um, how are you? Is everything OK? He goes, oh my god, I, I was just down in, 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 the, in the workshop you know, like, like trying to, to bang together a table that had come together a little bit. And while I was in there, it got dark. And I had to, like, come back to the house in the dark. And I, like... That's Stephen King? That's Stephen King, but that makes you understand why he's such a brilliant writer of scary things. He's the biggest frady cat in the world. Jonathan. That's also tweetable, if anybody's tweeting. You're also a great documentarist. I want to show a clip from one of your best 
a must be loved documentary. Let's do it. <clears throat> On Monday morning, uh, the station opened. Toyo, le géant de la route, vient à votre secours. Toyo, hub de japonais de qualité qui se vend à un prix défiant toute concurrence. Toyo est en vente à Economic Tires, avenue Charles-Sommaire et chez des distributeurs à travers la ville. Il est temps pour vous de changer vos anciens pneus. À Economic Tires, vos nouveaux pneus Toyo seront installés sans aucun supplément. Et il est même possible de les faire balancer électroniquement. I was at the microphone with Michelle, my wife. And we start broadcasting and giving information about the coup with report from everywhere in Port-au-Prince saying that how many people were killed in Saint-Martin, how many people were shot in Carrefour At 7.30, two trucks of the army stop in front of the station and start shooting. Because of the opening of the studios, the microphone caught the shooting and my listeners could listen to the shooting of the radio station by the soldier. It's a true story, it's a great character, an heroic radio personality. How did you learn this, this story? Um, I had gone down to um, Haiti uh, in 1986. Uh, I love Haitian art, and I went down there to, to go to the source. You're a collector of Haitian art. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Um, and uh, while I was down there, um, it was a year since um, Jean-Claude Duvalier had been chased out of the country. It was one year before there were going to be the first democratic elections in the history of Haiti for you know, decades, maybe ever. <clears throat> and there was this extraordinary spirit in the air of, um, you know, we're moving forward as a people. We're, gonna, we're on the brink of, we're, we're inside tremendous social change now. And um, I wanted to, I, I was really intoxicated by this. And it was amazing to see people so in love with the idea of democracy and so committed to a democratic future. And I thought, you know, us Americans really have a lot to learn in a way because we take the notion of democracy for granted. Well, those of us who enjoy the upside of democracy, we don't all enjoy democracy in America as we know. But that was my thinking. So I went back there with Joe Mennell to make a documentary um, called Haiti Dreams of Democracy. And we wanted to search out the people that were kind of the most influential at the moment in leading this movement towards uh, democracy. And we kept hearing about Jean-Dominique and Michel Montas um, as, and Radio IT as being you know, right at the forefront of, uh, of, of this great movement. So, um, you know, we went around and we interviewed people, and that was, uh, what we saw there was the first time I ever met Jean, um, uh, when they're going in the studio, that was in the, in the uh, Haiti Dreams of Democracy days, that was four years earlier. 
And um, I just was like knocked out by Jean. I thought he was one of the most extraordinary characters I'd ever come across. And um, then when uh, there was a coup that sent Jean into exile again in New York, I approached him to see if he would be interested in making a documentary with his story and kind of reporting on the coup and talking about the history of Haiti. And really, this was just me wanting to get to know this guy. You know, so I kind of made up this idea of a documentary. So, um, and I told him, I said, you know, when, when the coup is turned over and you return to Haiti, we'll go with you and we'll film the station going back on the air. So there'll be a happy ending to this story of a journalist in exile. He wasn't so sure, but he was bored uh, in New York. So he did several interviews with me. And then the coup was over. He went back to Haiti and me and my little team went with him. And we were filming, and the station was a mess. They had gone in, the military had gone in, and really kind of ruined all the equipment. And Jean quickly got very irritated by us being around. And he said, Jonathan, come to my house tomorrow morning at 6 AM uh, for coffee. And I was like, OK. So I went over there, and he said, look, this has to finish. Um, uh, you know, if, if you really wanted to do, do a documentary about me, it really has nothing to do with this radio station stuff, because I'm really an agronomist, da, 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 like this. So he said, listen, um, I can't, I'm trying to get this station back on the air. Every time I turn around, you or one of your friends has a camera up my ass. Um, <laughs> you, you, to preserve our friendship, you have to stop. And I thought, well, you know, we have become friends. OK. Then Jean was assassinated um, two years later. And it was just devastating. This great man, this great guy. And um, it was just, for anyone who was interested in and passionate, as me and my friends were, about democracy in Haiti, it was just that, gosh, if they can kill Jean-Dominique, it's hopeless. And um, my friend Daniel Wolf, who was one of the producers, said, actually, there's one thing we could do in response to this. We could finish the documentary. So we went back to Haiti um, to film Michel Montas bringing Radio Haiti back on the air one month after Jean's assassination. And uh, so we did that. And um, anyway, it's, uh, it, was, it was wonderful to do the film. It was something that, you know, so close to my heart, obviously. Was it ever shown in Haiti, this film? Oh, yes. Oh, I was. Yeah, it was shown in the, Haiti. It's shown all the time in Haiti. Oh, it was embraced like crazy in Haiti. And in fact, um, there was a distributor um, who bought the worldwide rights uh, called Think Films. And uh, we asked them, what are your plans to you know, distribute in Haiti? And they said, oh, Haiti doesn't exist as a, as a market for films. We're never going to distribute that. So without further discussion, uh, Michel Montas and Peter Seraf and Daniel Wolf and I, we got together and um, created a Creole language version with Creole subtitles and Creole voiceover. And we made 1,000 DVDs and just took them to Haiti and just like <laughs> gave them away, gave them to schools, gave them to libraries. Um, and the film has a real presence down there, I think, yeah. By the way, Michelle Montas now lives um, in New York. She had to flee Haiti. There was an assassination attempt on her. Her bodyguard was killed um, protecting her. And she's now in, in New York. She worked for the United Nations. She was the spokesperson for the Secretary General for a long time. And um, she's here, and she's having visa problems like everybody else. Um, <laughs> but she's here, and you know, we're very, very good friends. And she's a film buff and a lot of fun. You know, she's had this kind of amazing life. But... We ask you also to select a piece of music that you like. 
And this is a score from a great film. Let's listen to the music. We'll also watch a few images, and then I'll ask you about this music and why this film. Okay. <clears throat>
So, Jonathan, this is a score by Miklos Roja. Why did you pick this particular one? What do you like about it? Um, well, first, let me do that irritating thing. Um, could, if, if you saw Provenance? It, less than Napoleon less Dynamite. Less than Napoleon Much Dynamite. <laughs> this film, um, by the way, that wasn't a, a section of the film. That was kind of a pastiche yeah. of moments with, uh, uh, with Miklos Roja's music over it. Um, <clears throat> Providence is a sublime, brilliant masterpiece by just as great a filmmaker as ever existed, Alain René. Um, and you must see it. Um, uh, so, yeah, and think about music that inspires or what have you. Um, when I saw Providence the first time, um, I adored the film. It's about life itself. It's about death. It's about the human experience. And that score... Um, was to me just at the heart of the matter, and um, you know, there's, I think there's a certain kind of music like you know, um, Albinoni's Adagio that just makes you feel emotional. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, this, again, this piece just to me is so rich in emotion. And when I saw the film, I was like, oh my God, who did the score? And I saw that it was Miklos Rosa, who's a name that all film buffs know because he scored, you know, like. Spellbound and various Hitchcock movies. Big Hollywood composer back in the 40s and the 50s. And it was like, wow, Miklos Rocha is alive and, and doing things like that. So I was on the verge of, of doing um, my ill-advised Hitchcock homage, Last Embrace. And I thought, well, maybe I'll get Miklos Rosa to do this. And um, sent him the script and he passed on it. Um, but we shot the film, and I kept thinking, oh my God, if only we could have Miklos Rocha do this score. And I sent him a rough cut of the film, and this time he said, okay, you know, come out. He was in Hollywood, and we'll talk about this. I'm interested. So um, I met him, and it was an amazing experience being in the home of this brilliant composer. He's playing the themes on, uh, that he's going to use for my movie on the piano. I, I'm, I know he's going to do it with an orchestra, and I'm I, I, was, I, couldn't, I couldn't really hear anything with this piano. I'm just like, great, Miklos. So, um, and then truly he did an amazing score for a film that didn't really deserve it. And um, a very funny moment I had with him was uh, uh, when we finished, I said, so Miklos, what do, he was 77 at the time. I said, what, do, what are you going to do next? And he said, I don't know. You know every year he would go um, to Europe and, uh, and conduct... Um, his latest symphony. He moved out of films and just composed for classical music audiences. And he said, I said, hey, you haven't read anything good lately? He said, well, no, I mean, I, I read this script uh, yesterday um, that uh, this a filmmaker named Larry Cohen is going to make uh, called God Told Me To. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's about a crazy killer and uh, I'm, I'm, you know, and I said, well, okay, but are you going to do it? And he said, no, God told me not to. <laughs> um, but but uh, it was an honor to work with him. And again, I just feel that music is like, sometimes music can just really capture something that, that can take a film that's already you know, very strong and just move it into that sublime category. Since you mentioned music, you're also a great documentaries <clears throat> about music. And I must admit that there is a conflict of interest now because we screened a film <laughs> that David Azzolini produced. I am among the producers. And I'm happy to say that it's a film about an Italian musician. Let's watch a little clip and then we'll tell you a few things about it. Mm -hmm. 
stessa cosa ho voluto fare per i ritmi del mondo, no? Mi piaceva questa cosa, i piedi, i piedi dei ritmi, no? Il ritmo dei piedi battuti del Sudan, della Nigeria, il ritmo della Tanzania, del Bano. Il ritmo originale, il piede, per piede intendiamo il ritmo senza nessun tipo di sovrastruttura, come dicevano i greci, no? un ritmo boom, 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 no? boom, start so it was a Christmas party I think four or five years ago and you were at my place and Davide who at the time was the director of the Naples Film Festival asked me to invite you to the festival so I say Jonathan would you like to come to Naples for the festival and his response was only if you introduce me to Enzo Avitabile <laughs> and I said this is a joke because I didn't know who Enzo Avitabile was practically I said, sure there is no problem <laughs> and of course, I called him and I say, Davide, we must do something because he wants to meet Enzo Avitabile. And he said, basically, the same thing. is this a joke? No, <laughs> but it was not a joke. And I want to know, how did you know Enzo Avitabile? Three years later, no, two years later, we had a wonderful film. Thank you. Thank you. And, and Thank I you discovered David. a great, a great artist. But tell me something. How did you discover Enzo Avitabile? 
Well, you know, it's a very New York experience. Um, I'm sure I'm not the only person here tonight who tunes in John Schaefer uh, every night for New Sounds. And one night we, we were doing a mix in the city and I left and got on Henry Hudson. I live up in Rockland County. So I'm um, driving along and, um, oh man, John Schaefer's gonna be on in a minute. And he comes on, he's like, hi, this is John Schaefer. Tonight we're featuring New Sounds from Naples, Italy. And I, honestly, my heart sunk. <laughs> I thought, oh, what was that gonna be like? So um, he said, we're gonna lead off um, with Enzo Abitabile. And this kind of music comes on the radio. And I'm on, on you know, Henry Hudson and the George Washington Bridge is there with all the beautiful light. And I'm hearing this music and it was, you know, as thrilling as experience you can have alone in your car. Um, and I just was like, oh my God. And then after, after Enzo's song, then um, Daniele Seppe comes on. And I, more and more and more. And I became, you know, like a big enthusiast for um, the Neapolitan sound. You know, I thought, wow, this is thrilling. Because, you know, you can sense with, with actually with all these composers, especially Enzo, of course, you know, you can sense this deep, tradition, you know, this deep, you know, organic uh, tradition, but the, the, the influence, the global influence, the world music aspect is just so there, and it's kind of like, I hadn't heard anything like this before, really. So anyway, um, I went home and I bought all the downloads and, and started listening to this music all the time. So at the moment when you brought up coming to Naples for the festival, which obviously I was totally <laughs> obsessed with doing immediately, but I said, and it's true, it was kind of a joke, but you know, sometimes you joke, but there's also some truth in it. So that's why I said, yes, I'll come on the condition you What is the thing Enzo? that you like the most about Enzo? Um, he's a pure artist, in my well, opinion. He's just a brilliant genius. I mean, my God, as a composer and also as a, as a musician, I love his voice. And I love the fact that he's so committed to breaking down borders and, and bringing musicians together um, to, you know, with no respect for, 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 for country lines, you know, with the belief that, you know, we are all in this together, you know, whatever country we were born in, and we're, we're against the notion of borders, and we, we feel like that's a huge problem is that we're so separated and so restricted now that, that maybe there, the possibility for positive change could come from this. So, you know, he brings in all these musicians, and it's, he's enormously popular. I'm shocked that you hadn't heard no, of no, him. No, no, I, I knew him, but, but I was <laughs> shocked that you knew him. <laughs> but um, so, so that's really the thing. I just think he's just a world-class. And also he has this amazing history um, where he you know, came to America in his 20s and, and jammed with, um, you know, with uh, Africa Mambada. And Tina Turner, too. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, so he's, he's just great. And at the risk of being suddenly a used car salesman, if you haven't seen Enzo Avitabile in music life, this <laughs> would be it. a good one to watch. He, you, you will love him and Please you'll love the so. music. <laughs> <laughs> we still have three films, three clips to show. Let's do the first one, which is Rachel Getting Married. Ah. Which got a nomination for Anatoly, I think. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the lilac's fabulous, Emma. She looks like <laughs> Freesia. Oh, beautiful. She just cut me a tattoo. What? 
Um, nothing, nothing. It's I just really like the gray. Of course you do. We're all wearing lilac. It's coordinated. It's a wedding. Okay, well this is in the color scheme and it looks like a cloud. It's fantastic. Exactly. Okay. You know how I am. I don't wear lilac. It's good to have a principle. Well, you wore a lilac sweater with a cat face on the front of it on the cover of Seventeen magazine oh, when I was so at fashion camp. So yeah, they nice. paid me. And I was on horse tranquilizers, so... You look good. Seriously. Why is Emma the maid of honor? Why am I not the maid of honor? Because... What does that mean? Uh, because I wasn't entirely sure when you were coming or if you'd even make it. I wasn't sure if you'd have time for a fitting. Bullshit. It's a sorry. You take a bolt of cloth and you wrap it around yourself a bunch of times. Jesus Christ, I've been home for a day. I can't get a straight answer to this. What are you talking about? I'm talking about Dad offering me food every two seconds. Oh, you know what? Dad offers Irish hunger no, no, strikers food. No, no, no it's not even about the food. He has to know exactly where I am at all times because he's never resolved his own trust issues. That's odd. You know what? Shut the fuck up! All right, blow me. Okay. Leave Dad alone. I'd love Let's. to. I want to. Okay? He won't let me. I just... I can feel him watching me all the time, and Carol, and you guys too. Because we have nothing better to think about. You know, everyone in the house is looking at me like I'm a visiting sociopath. I mean, seriously, I wonder what, what why. do you expect me to do? Burn the house down? That was a mattress fire. That was not even at home. It was at a sleepover. Okay, you know what? Fine. Fuck you both. You win. I'm gonna get half about tattooed across my forehead. God, let the heart heart be. Okay, is being my maid of honor that important to you? Because I didn't think you gave a shit. I'm sorry. Emma, Emma, would you be horribly offended and hurt if I asked you to step down as maid of honor? For her? What? Are you serious? Is this what you want? Okay, fine, fine. You can have it. The crown is yours. First runner-up. Thank you, Emma. Thank you. You know what? Everything is not about you, no, Kim. No, it's not about me. It's about sisterhood. You're such a paragon of sisterhood. You know, ready for sisterhood. Sisterhood conquers all. You know, I can really see rehab has done wonders for you, Kim. Fuck you. Hmm. The script is written by Jenny Lumet, who is Cine Lumet's daughter. Right. But I always wonder if you improvised a lot in this film. It gives the sense that there is a lot of improvisation. Am I wrong? Um, well, there's this, this, actually, that was all scripted, and the vast majority of the film was scripted. Jenny's a you know, brilliant writer, and we all knew it, so there was no, you know, we wanted to pretty much stick to the book. In the film, there's this um, extended scene of, uh, of uh, where the, it's the groom's dinner, or whatever you call it, where everybody, you know, gathers for the meal and where they have the toast the night before, and in that scene, um, Anne had a scripted speech, um, and Jenny had written it in little jumps and stuff. So I thought, well, let's just have a rehearsal dinner, and um, I'm going to encourage everybody at the table to make a speech, um, if they want to, to the bride and groom. And Anne will have to find a moment where she can work her way into the lineup, because I really wanted this film to feel very, very real. Um, we kind of pretended we were making a documentary. Uh, Declan Quinn is the director of photography in that film, and you know, he operates the camera 
as well as lights it. And he's just so amazing. So we, we didn't have any rehearsed shots. Um, we just shot it like a documentary. So in that scene, um, a number of the guests uh, thing had speeches so good that they wound up in the movie. But otherwise, uh, it was very, very much on book. If Dell doesn't kill me, because we're running late, we still have three uh, scenes. I want to show you number aye, one. Aye. We all, what about our dinner reservations? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see the first one, which is a great film. You won your Oscars as best director. The film is Silence of the Lambs. Let's watch it. Jack Crawford must be very busy indeed if he is recruiting help from the student body. Busy hunting that new one, Buffalo Bill. What a naughty boy he is. Do you know why he's called Buffalo Bill? Please tell me. The newspapers won't say. Well, it started as a bad joke in Kansas City homicide. And they said, this one likes to skin his humps. Why do you think he removes their skins, Agent Starling? Throw me with your acumen. It excites him. Most serial killers keep some sort of trophies from their victims. I didn't. No. No, you ate yours. You send that through now. Agent Starling, you think you can dissect me with this blunt little tool? No. I, I, I thought that your knowledge... You're so ambitious, aren't you? Do you know what you look like to me with your good bag and your cheap shoes? You look like a rube. A well-scrubbed, hustling rube with a little taste. Good nutrition's given you some length of bone, but you're not more than one generation from poor white trash, are you, Agent Starling? And that accent you've tried so desperately to shed, pure West Virginia. What is your father to you? Is he a coal miner? Does he stink of the land? You know how quickly the boys found you. All those tedious, sticky fumblings in the backseats of cars while you could only dream of getting out, getting anywhere, getting all the way to the end. See a lot, Doctor. And are you strong enough to point that high-powered perception at yourself? What about it? Why don't you why don't you look at yourself and write down what you see? Or maybe you're afraid to. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. You fly back to school now, little starling. Fly, fly, fly. Fly, fly, fly. Don't show this to Stephen King. <laughs> when uh, you won the Oscars for this in your 
acceptance speech, you said that this is a very moral story. It's written by Thomas Harris, the novel. Why do you think it's very moral? Um, because for me, it was really Clarice's story. And here's a young woman who endures everything that Clarice must endure while trying to save the life of another young woman. And she has to traverse this just this overpowering um, kind of patriarchal world. Um, all the authority fig uh, figures are, are men, and they're all taller than her. And, and uh, Lecter, and her, her boss, Jack Crawford, and Buffalo Bill himself. So um, this whole idea of, of one person being that deeply committed to um, the idea of saving another, um, I just thought this is what the story is really about. And um, when I met Jody for the first time to talk about the film, um, she's really the one that, that helped focus me on that, that aspect. And in fact, um, you know, whenever you do a movie, you have to name your production company. And um, I named our production company um, Strong Heart Productions uh, in, as a salute to Jody's perception and to the character of Clarice. Is it true that your first choice for her role was Michelle Pfeiffer? Yeah. And Sean Connery for The Cannibal? Yes. What did it happen? Why we have Anthony Hopkins and, and Jodie Foster? Well, um, Michelle and I had just done a movie called Married to the Mob, and we had a terrific experience. And I have always loved to repeat, and I thought Michelle would be great in that part. Um, so I, without really thinking about anybody else, offered her the, the part. And she at first agreed, but then she... Um, became more and more concerned about living in this dark a world that this story kind of traveled through. So she backed out. Um, by this point, Jody had made her interest known, and I wasn't interested in in Jody. Um, she had, you know, won an Academy Award for um, the accused. The accused. Um, but I just thought, you know, she's too California, and and we just kind of like. That wouldn't work. Jodie Foster's not the answer here. I met her as a courtesy. That's when she told me her perceptions, and I was impressed with that, but I still wanted someone who, someone different. And then um, I actually sent the script to one other person, which was Meg Ryan, who was very popular then, who had just done When Harry Meets Sally, and I could picture her as being uh, this uh, junior uh, FBI agent. Very, you know, I thought that would be great. And she was just like, Word came back quickly. She read like 10 pages and was like, there's no way I would do something like that. Um, while seeing other people, I met um, the young Laura Dern. Laura's still young, but she was back in 93. Very young. And she's the one. And meeting Laura and talking to her, I went, oh my God, she is Clarice. And um, I got very excited about the possibility, but the studio said, look, you know, we're, we're not looking for superstars here, but... Laura's an unknown, and anyway, there's this Academy Award-winning Jodie Foster who's so passionate to do this, and um, I said, oh, I'll meet, um, I should meet Jodie again. So she came in, and we were in offices there in Century City out in California, and came in, and frankly, it was Jodie Foster again, you know, and I liked her very much and stuff, but was, uh, I thought it was okay. We chatted, and I thanked her for coming back, and she left the room, and I did a strange thing. I, I, I found myself, I walked over to the door 
and watched Jody kind of walking down the hallway towards the elevator. And I thought about, you know, this fierce, you know, vision she had about the character and about she who could be in any movie at that point because she was so popular, you know, coming, knowing I was looking at other people, knowing I wasn't like that. And I saw her trudging her way towards the elevator. And I thought, oh, stop being such an asshole. Give her the part. <laughs> so Jody was cast, and as we know from day one, she was unbelievable. Unbelievable. And we had a great time making that movie, and we're very close friends now. And she's, by the way, she's in New York. She's getting ready to direct a film soon uh, starring George She's also Clooney. a very good filmmaker. Oh, she's a wonderful she's a filmmaker. Great. She's a wonderful everything. She's a genius. Um, so, uh, you know, you live and learn. That's all I can say. When we asked you to select a painting that you like, you select a painting from the same film. So we have a very, very brief clip from Silence of the Lambs again, and you tell us about the painting, please. Are you close to catching somebody, you think? Bill. Yes. We may be. Did you take over this place after Mrs. Littman died? Is that right? Yeah, I, I bought this house uh, two years ago. Did she leave any records, any business records, tax forms, lists of employees? Well, nothing like that at all. That doesn't happen in the movie. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the painting. Why this painting? Uh, I chose this painting because, um, you know, there was the idea of inspiration, uh, uh, subjects, uh, objects that uh, inspire me. And this is a painting by uh, an artist named Joanne Howard, who I have the great good fortune of having been married to for 28 years. And, um, you know, in, in silence, uh, it, it has so much to do with, you know, kind of extrasensory perception. And um, in this extraordinary encounter where Jody finally meets, and she started to understand the idea of metamorphosis with the death head moth and what have you. And I thought, and, you know, I'm, I'm like... We're not supposed to be proud of other people, but I've always been so proud of Joanne's work because I think she's a fabulous artist. And I thought, I have justification of putting one of Joanne Howard's paintings in the movie because it can be there on the wall. And I don't know if you noticed, but um, it's a shot of Jody. And at a certain point, as she's starting to realize that this is it, the camera actually pans over to the director's wife's painting. (laughs) Um, Clarice doesn't see that painting, but we do. And I like to think that Clarice feels that that painting. So um, thank you for including this in the... Thank you for selecting. Getting Joanne's permission, by the way, wasn't easy. She's she's very kind of... I'll thank her. I'll call her. Now, we have almost finished. I asked Jonathan to read a brief piece of a book that he really loves. Yeah. um, This is a book called Song Yet Sung by James McBride. Has anybody here read Song Yet Sung? Oh, it's a great book. It's a great, great book. James, of course, is the author of Color of Water and The Secret of Santa Ana, and uh, more recently, The Good Lord Bird. He's a great writer and a, a, a dear guy. 
And I love this book so much. Um, so um, I'm going to put it in the light because I forgot to bring my glasses. But I'll read a little bit of this so, in the hopes it will kind of, kind of convey the flavor. This is set um, uh, pre-Civil War in Maryland in slave times. It's got a tremendous array of characters. Um, uh, it's got lobstermen, um, runaway slaves, freedmen, um, white settlers, um, uh, slave catchers, all kinds of characters. So it's a great book. Um, so I'll just read a tiny little bit of this, as soon as I can focus on the page. OK, here we go. Um, the chapter is called the Wool Man Declares War. Um, from the woods just beyond the cornfield of Kathleen Sullivan's farm, a pair of eyes followed the movements of the white woman as she made her way into her cabin. He'd been watching her along with her slave and son for several hours now. He had silently slipped into the high grass near the edge of the cornfield when the woman and her slave stepped into the shed leaving the boy alone to toss rocks into the stream next to the cornfield. But just as he was about to leap for the child, the door of the smokehouse opened, and the two adults emerged again. So he had slipped back beyond the tree line into the grove of pine trees, concealed in the thick bushes, lying flat on his stomach so they wouldn't see him. It didn't matter. Had Kathleen, Amber, and Jeff Boy stood five feet from him, they would not have seen him. The wool man was so practiced in the habit of standing in one place, frozen, for hours, at a t for hours at a time before springing on his prey, that even the most practiced hunter would pass him unwittingly. Standing frozen was more than second nature to him. It was a way of life. He always trusted the, he always trusted the notion of patience. It was how he believed the world worked. Everything, he was sure, had already been decided. So moving against it was like moving against the tide of the Chesapeake or against the dark, swirling waters of the sinking creek, which surrendered its treasures to him regularly and naturally. Be silent. Wait. Waiting was how he had saved himself when he first found himself alone in the wild 19 years ago. He was a tiny boy then, his memories like the winter breath of the Chesapeake that blew against his broad, uncovered shoulders, chilly, not warm, but manageable. I'll stop there. But this is kind Thank of... Thank you. <laughs> it's time to go, but I would like to thank deeply Jonathan Demme and all of you. Oh, thank thank you. you all so much. <laughs>